You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. So if you will join me then, I will be in Matthew chapter 26. Uh, We're going to read the middle of the text, picking up where we've left off in our journey through the gospel of Matthew, and then... uh, um, so in the journey through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we find ourselves in the last of the three chapters. As Matthew has been telling us the good news of the teaching, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus, he covers about 30 to 30, 33 years in the first two-thirds. And in the last third of the book, he zooms in on the last week of Jesus' life. That is, the majority of what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John want to communicate is the last week of Jesus' life with an extended introduction. And in fact, here in the 26th chapter, we find ourselves in the evening, the very night that Jesus was arrested. So last week, we saw a a paradox of, of, as you see in the beginning of the first verse of chapter 26, that, uh, that they're going to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus has regularly predicted what will happen, that, that they would be encouraged and not shocked, that he would be handed over and crucified. And in verse 3, we find a paradox of a person wanting to betray Jesus, the, the high priest plotting to kill Jesus, because after all, you don't get hung on a cross for telling people things that they want to hear. And then immediately following, we're introduced to a woman who anoints Jesus' head and body with an expensive, a priceless, an heirloom of nard, of, of, of some sort of, uh, in an, a very expensive ointment in an alabaster flask, anointing him for his very death. So beginning in verse 14, the paradox continues, as we see in the last night of Jesus' life, or excuse me, the last night that Jesus, before he was betrayed and arrested, beginning in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 26. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. I want to invite you to lean in to hear God's word to us. Now I want to skip to what I would typically read a section of at the end of our time together. But in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, he gives a great deal of instruction. And I want to begin with the end in mind because this evening, no, it's this evening, that this morning, talking about the last evening of Jesus' life, we're going to be invited to do something that Christians have done for centuries. That is, we're going to be invited to meet Jesus himself at a table, celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, interestingly named because it was in some sense the first of many suppers, communion or the Eucharist, you might have heard it called. And when the Apostle Paul begins to encourage these, uh, these people, these young believers who have, who have made their way to be a part of this church in Corinth, he gives instruction in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I usually reference it every time we, we meet at the table for communion. But if you want to, you can, you can, I commend it to you for your reflection. But I'll read to you the end of that chapter. He says, but in the following instructions, he's been giving them guidance on how to live in light of Christ's death and resurrection. In the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse for the worse. Uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you must be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. Then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, this is saying to you and to me, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions whenever I come. Notice Paul's encouragement as he interprets and applies the very text we read just a moment ago. A person ought to examine himself or herself such that when they come to the table, it is truly the substitutionary, atoning, sacrificial death of Jesus that is the center of focus. And so, I want to spend, as we walk through this text for just a few moments here, I want to spend our time doing just that, examining. Let everything I begin to share with you as we read through Matthew chapter 26 be an invitation to examination. Because after all, to meet at the table is to accept an invitation. It's an invitation that's open to all baptized and repenting believers. And so if that's not you this morning, notice what he says. The worst case scenario, you would be drinking to your own judgment. As if to blaspheme the sacrifice that Christ has accomplished for you. Best case scenario, it would just be silly and an unsatisfying snack. But, but, for those of us who look at the cracker wafer bread, through the eyes of faith we behold a mystery. We see the body of Christ sustaining us. We look through this little bit of juice and see with the eyes of faith the blood of Christ satisfying the thirst of our souls. And so, if that's not you, if you're not a repenting, baptized believer, if you haven't placed your faith in Jesus, then do me a favor, abstain from joining at the table. But uh, as I shared with you a moment ago, scan that QR code. You'll see a way that you can respond. We would love to tell you what it means to love and trust Jesus, to turn from a life that glorifies lesser things. If that isn't you, then today's the day. This is the invitation for you. So I want to begin every single section of text that we have looked at. I want to begin with a question. What's your price? What's your price? What does it take to make you compromise your morals, your integrity, your character? Maybe one better way to ask this is, under what circumstances do you lie? In what kind of a situation do you, probably without thinking about it, say things that are untrue? Exaggerate the facts. Tell things in a way that make you look different than you really are. What is your price? What does it take? In what situations are you willing to compromise what you know is good, what you know is righteous, what you know to be true? In what circumstances are you willing to compromise what is morally upright? And there you go, that's your price. That's your price. Now, I, I, I quote this regularly, there's lots of different um, artists, but one of my favorite is like, uh, um, kind of to paraphrase is, everyone's got a price, and it's always lower than you think. 
It's always lower than you think. And so when we see this encounter of Jesus with last week, a, a woman who was uncalculating in her devotional generosity, she took a, a priceless heirloom and anointed Jesus for death with it. Immediately on the heels of that, we see the opposite. This kind of calculating betrayal of Judas for a price that is lower than you would think. So right in this passage, you see traitors, you see a sacrificial deliverer, and then you see a promise to comfort. Now, what I want to point out to you toward the end of our time is that you also see in this little passage a miniature salvation history. That is, it's almost like a, a miniature version of the entire story of the Bible. I don't know if you caught it, but you're first introduced to what? A rebellious, deceptive person who turns on God's very son, rejects God's plan completely. And then what is Jesus' response? In response to the sin that separates people from God, in this case literally separated Judas relationally from Jesus, what is God's response? Salvation is on offer with a blameless sacrifice and substitute. And then there's a promise, a promise and encouragement for security for all those who will continue to sin and fail, but are yet continued to be covered under the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. So, beginning in verse 14, you get introduced to, G to Judas. Now, the precise motive and manner of the approach here is not important to Matthew. And I've tried to, as we've walked through the Gospel of Matthew, to let Matthew tell the story and let him tell us what's important. So you could sit and speculate all day about why Judas did what he did. But as you do that, make sure you stop and ask yourself, why do you do the awful things that you do? Uh, be before you fixate on the motives of Jesus, you, you're probably likely to consider the possibility that all sin in some sense or another is absurd. It makes no sense. It's a folly. It's foolishness. And on display here is a, an illustration of sin that I think even reflects sin as it introduced in the very beginning of the Bible. That sin is the exchange of God for whatever we put in his place. Sin is exchanging God, life with God, all the blessings that come with the character and presence of God, and trading that for anything else we would put in its place. Romans 1 says that it's trading the very creator, the artist himself, for the creation. It's loving this lesser thing instead of the, per the person. We sing on a regular basis one of the oldest of hymns, and the phrase goes, Come thou fount of every blessing. And in it, you kind of get the, a window into this. We don't want blessing. We're not praying for God's blessing. Oh no, that would be cheap and a waste of your life. We want the source of blessing. We don't just want to we don't want just a blessing here or there in this life that will fade. We want the source, the fountain, the very Father in whom there is no shadow of turning and whom every single good and perfect gift originates. After all, you know this is true. I love tacos. So if every time I hung out with you, you bought me tacos, at a certain point, at some point, you would begin to question whether I actually loved you or I just love the benefits of our relationship. I remember feeling this one time very powerfully. Um, I had a, a grandparents that would always give us a, like a prize or present hidden in the, in the guest room closet. 
And every time we would come, uh, there would be some sort of prize or toy, just something silly, uh, something. And, and, and I, just like, like Judas here or like any sinful person or just like any punk kid, walked into my grandmother's house uh, going to visit them for a holiday. And the first thing I said to my grandmother is, where's my prize? Now, I'm from a lineage of very strong and fierce women. You shouldn't do that. <laughs> Needless to say, though, I learned a lesson. As if the question she posed was, is that what I'm here for? Is that, is that all I am to you? And so, too, the folly of sin. To look at the God of the universe and say, where's my prize? Instead of wanting a life in His presence, communion with Him, we want, to, we want to negotiate for some sort of tangible and yet ultimately something with an expiration date. And no one knows why Judas did it, but what Matthew does tell us is that there was money involved, there was a price, and two, Judas was conspiring with the very enemies of Jesus. And so sin is this visible exchange to put a price on Something that uh, ultimately is priceless. To take the, the expedient and the temporary. Now this is not a coincidence. If, if you want to, you, I, I commend to your study even this week, the, the reflection here of this value is found in Exodus chapter 21 as Moses is giving an outline of how people would interact. And, and starting in verse 28, he, he says that when there's an ox that gores a man or a woman, then you'll stone and kill the ox, but ultimately the owner of the ox is not liable. But if the ox has a reputation, is accustomed to gore and, and harm people, at a certain point, the owner is warmed, but then the owner will be put to death if it gores another person. If it gores a son or a daughter, same thing, there, there's, there's a rule that it will be dealt with. But then in verse 32 of Exodus 21, he says, if the ox gores a servant or slave, male or female, then the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver and then the ox shall be stoned notice what he's what this beautiful picture of the redemptive purpose of god in this story 30 pieces of silver might seem like a lot it's a pretty affordable sum it might be just a, a few weeks worth of wages nothing like the priceless heirloom that we see in the previous in the previous passage but notice, he takes, according to Exodus 21, a number that the chief priests and Judas would have been familiar with. He takes the price of a wounded servant. Move on with me to verse 17. In verse 17, we find something even more powerful. Jesus is orchestrating events. He's not a victim of them. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, they ask, where are you going to celebrate the Passover? This is a, a yearly annual celebration. It would be the same as asking, what are you guys doing for Christmas this year, right? Um, the, everyone has some sort of a, a way to celebrate or commemorate Christmas. Even if it's nothing, it's kind of like, that's worth saying, right? Same thing here. And they say, where are we going to do this? And, and Jesus says, go into the city and then tell them. The teacher says, my time is at hand. I'm going to keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, that's pretty profound. Even, even just the miraculous, or at this case, just kind of, in this case, maybe just the authority and power of Jesus to, to make these things move. Um, after all, um, if you wonder how difficult this might be, do me a favor, this coming November, the day before Thanksgiving, try to go to Sam's, Costco, or Hy-Vee, right? Or, or maybe even today, the day of the Super Bowl, try to, try, try to go to Costco, Sam's, or Hy-Vee, right? The, 
uh, right before Christmas, go to, go to one of those places, and you get the idea, like, oh, this is a big deal. And so for him to, to simply say, this is what's going to happen, and for that to absolutely take place, just like he had predicted that he would enter in just a few days before and found a colt tied, prepared, ready for his grand entry in the, as we celebrate on Palm Sunday. Jesus is orchestrating the events. He is not a victim of these events. Now, this is important for two different reasons. One, things are not out of his control, but two, they're meant to encourage his disciples. It's as if to say, whatever might happen, as much as it might seem that things are out of hand, they are not out of mind. Jesus is orchestrating the events. He even predicts what's going to happen in verse 20. When it was evening, they were all together. He predicts exactly what had taken place behind his back. Back in verse 14, when, when no one was looking and Judas and the chief priests began to conspire against Jesus, Jesus knows everything that's going on. He's aware of it, and he predicts the future. Now, the most powerful thing about this is visible in what he does next. He, he draws attention to the fact that Judas will be the one that betrays him. In verse 22, it says that when he pointed that out, that someone would betray him, notice the disciples' response in verse 22. They were all sorrowful, and they were all asking, is it I? Now, this is important because we, we might speculate to think that, oh, like Judas, everyone, knew, everyone was on to Judas, as if to say that when Judas betrayed, all of the, all of the disciples were like, yeah, I saw that coming. Notice that is not the case. They had all walked with Jesus. They had been living together with Jesus for three different years, for three years apparently. And, and when the betrayal of Jesus by Judas comes to their attention, every single one of them asks the same question. Like, they didn't, you're like notice they're like, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, Judas. Notice he said, someone, one of you is going to betray me. And every single one of them did the right thing. They go, is it me? as if to admit something like, I can, see my, I can see myself doing that. I can see myself doing that. But here's the most profound thing we find. He predicts that they are going, that, that, that one of them is going to betray him. And what does he do? What's the context in which he predicts this? It's a meal. Don't miss this most powerful thing. Jesus eats and offers friendship with sinners. Notice he doesn't turn the table like he did in the temple. He simply looks across the table at the people he loves and predicts the future to encourage them. This is going to happen. Oh, by the way, the one that will betray me is right now dipping into the same bowl as me. Friend, be comforted by this. Be comforted. See what a glorious Savior this Jesus is. This Jesus delights to dine with sinners. He meets with and dines with people who do not deserve his presence. And then comes the institution of this ritual that Christians have observed for centuries. Verse 26, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink, all of, it, drink, it all, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now this is where it gets interesting. And I would commend to you uh, Exodus chapter 12, uh, a recounting of, uh, of the Passover that they were celebrating. 
See, the Passover would have been a commemorative meal, a, a meal that the, these, these children of Israel would have celebrated over and over and over again to remind themselves that God had delivered them from slavery. You might have even been a part of one of these, a modern-day what's called a seder or a uh, or modern-day kind of feast of unleavened bread or, or a Passover. And he gives a prediction of what will happen, and then he illustrates the point he illustrates the point with, as it were, like an object lesson. You're going to betray me, but let me teach you something here. He doesn't miss the opportunity to demonstrate something powerful for them. And he commends them to set up the meal. And as was their custom, there would have been typically, and again, every, every single family does every single religious custom differently. I know that's probably the truth uh, for even the families in this room. The way you celebrate this or that is different from the next person. But what would have been expected is that someone would preside over the meal. Typically, someone presides over a big family meal, right? You, you, you might like start to twitch when you think about who that is or how that plays out in your family, right? Um, but someone usually presides over the meal and, and gives some sort of an explanation, as it were. Um, this is why we're eating this. Or even if it's not that, it's at least this is how hard I worked on this, uh, right? There's some sort of someone who is kind of like the source of and presiding over the meal. This would have been a custom uh, for all of these people to celebrate the Passover. And, and most of the, the common kinds of rituals that would have taken place during this meal, um, there's several different steps. You, you, can, you can do your own research on this. There's lots of different ways that different families would observe it. But the most common were that there were four different cups. And the four different cups represented Exodus chapter 6, the promises of God to bring out, to deliver, to redeem and then to take them as his people. It's four different cups, four cups of wine, right? That's, that's a party, right? This is a family party. And so someone would have presided over them and explained, this is the cup of, right? This is the cup of God's deliverance, or this is the cup of God's justice, or this is the cup of God's redemption. As if to say, right, you know, again, you may not do this with religious fervor, but you know what a toast looks like, Right? Um, and, and maybe you're not as eloquent, or maybe you don't kind of like, this is the cup of, right? Maybe you're just like, here we go, yeah, right, just to whatever, right? Think of a, a powerful meaning behind the person presiding over each of these and declaring something. This cup is the cup of God's deliverance, his redemption, and his very presence to be with us. That's one of them. And the other ritual that you, you'll probably find is there are a series of questions now, before and after the temple was destroyed, these questions vary, and so we're not really sure the Mishnah is, our, is, our, is a, a, Jewish, a Jewish rabbinical text that teaches us a little bit how these customs would have worked. Different Jewish historians give us insights in this, but roughly speaking, there would have been some questions around it, and the children would have recited them, and they would have asked something like, why is this night different from all other nights? And they would have in some way recited that this night is different because this night we commemorate that we were fleeing from slavery, we were fleeing out of Egypt. And so they would ask something like, why, why are we eating this bread without leaven, right? And, and it, again, it would have been a meaningful picture. And the person presiding over the meal would have said, you know, we're eating this bread without leaven because when we were first delivered, we were in such a hurry that we didn't have to, I know you bread nerds in the room know exactly what this is. The rest of us don't really understand it, but we didn't have time to like feed the starter, right? We didn't have fine time to let the, the bread rise and proof, I've learned that's a word, right? Like, we don't have time for that. It's, it's, time, it's time to go. We're going to eat this. And as soon as it came out of the oven, it hadn't risen. The yeast hadn't activated. 
And then they would have dipped these particular breads or, or in this case, the lamb that was slain as the celebration of the Passover. Because on that night, the last of the plagues came upon all of the people, God's people and even the people of Egypt, including Pharaoh and his son. And that plague was the plague of the firstborn. And the, and the command that God gave to Moses and to his people is that you will take this lamb and you will, you, will kill this lamb, you will kill this lamb and take the blood of this lamb and with hyssop mark over the top of your doorposts so that as the angel of the Lord comes over, instead of taking the firstborn of your household, this angel of death, as it were, will pass over. You get it? And so they would ask these questions and celebrate these things, all with someone presiding over them. They had done this their entire lives, right? Same as like, you know your Christmas tradition, you know what you do. But Jesus broke the tradition. Not the first time, but when he broke that tradition, instead of explaining that these cups of wine represent God's deliverance, God's, right, God's presence, and God's redemption, instead of explaining, as it were, these things, the, the bread and, and, how, right, and the bitter herbs and how they explain their flight and deliverance from slavery into the promised land, Jesus goes off script and declares a mystery to them. And he says, this bread... This bread, this that we are eating, after blessing, thanking God for it, he says, is my body. As if to say all of those commemorations of God's deliverance were pointing to something. All of those celebrations of God's deliverance from their slavery was leading up to something. Jesus presiding over this meal says, this is it. This is it. This is a meal unlike any other meal, to celebrate something different. After all, right, um, different commentarians reflect on this, but like, you know, every, every founder of every prominent world religion has a pretty, pretty nice death. Right? They, they die in a pretty comfortable and nice way. Not the founder of Christianity. And every world religion has a symbol or a kind of a meaning or something that's put forward and the meaningful symbol of Christianity is a symbol of torture, a cross. And that's powerful because, after all, who would want to follow that? Who would want to see a man betrayed, stripped naked, crucified? Crucifying, uh, a crucifixion would have been the worst way to die. Uh, different, different first to third century scholars talk about the, the word crux, uh, which is the, uh, right, the, the, the word for cross, would have been like a swear word, an awful word. It would almost have been a profane word. I heard one, uh, one commentarian kind of described it this way. Imagine, if you will, starting a religion. Imagine you want to start a movement of people. Now, imagine a four-letter word. And now imagine naming your religion that four-letter word. Right? Imagine taking that which is profane and grotesque and vulgar and saying, this is us, guys. You see the paradox. You see the powerful thing on display. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to follow such a public display of failure and disgrace? And in it, the answer to the question is the meaning. And Jesus says, the only reason you would want to do this is because of why I am dying, what it is that my body is purchasing, and what it is that my blood is accomplishing. Hebrews 9 says it this way, that when Christ appeared as a high priest 
of the good things that have come than through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify, this is the language of the ritual of of the Passover. If the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works in order to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, and since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive, therefore not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Therefore not even the first, or excuse me, but for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For now Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but Christ has entered into heaven himself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it for him to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood on, not, that is not his own. For then he would have to, had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, here's the good news, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of, him very, of his very self. And just as it is appointed for a man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Do you, do you hear the powerful reinterpretation as Christ presides over this meal and says, this isn't what you think it's about. This is about a once and for all sacrifice. After all, if there's no meaning in death, it's kind of absurd. It would be silly to commemorate it if it didn't have purpose even a sacrificial death. Let me put it to you this way. I heard, I heard one person kind of illustrate it this way, and I'm, uh, I'll paraphrase how, uh, how I understand it. Uh, it, it. Imagine there's two different scenarios, all right? Both of these scenarios, my wife and I are walking along the side of the street, right? In the first scenario, my wife is not in danger, but as a bus is passing by, I throw myself in front of the bus, thereby dying. How will my wife feel about that act of sacrifice? It would be absurd, would it not? You're like, what? what an idiot. Why would he do that? And maybe, hopefully she would miss me and be like, this has is, this is deprived me of things I value. 
Now imagine a similar scenario. My wife and I are walking along the side of a road, and some way, or in some way, my, my wife manages to be in front of the oncoming bus. And imagine now I dive to, to push her away from the bus, and, 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 and by a matter of inches, I push her out of harm's way, but I'm killed by the bus. Do you see how, the different, you see how we would respond differently? Friend, so too with what we celebrate at communion. The God of the universe invites us to a table to celebrate the most meaningful death, a once and for all death. A death that while it might seem absurd for those of us who have seen him as the atoning sacrifice, the substitute for our very sin, it is the most satisfying and delightful thing that we can think about. Now remember the scenario, this is where the analogy falls apart, you know this. Hopefully my wife in either scenario would miss me. And you might think, well, what do we do with this Jesus who has laid down his life for us and died in our place? Aren't we going to miss him? And friend, here's the good news. On the third day, he was risen from the dead. So that not only would his atoning sacrifice be accepted, but also there would be this powerful exclamation mark that we would not miss him, but we would be with him. Because notice what happens next. This is it. Let's blow your mind institutes the Lord's Supper. They go out to the Mount of Olives, beginning in verse 30. And what does he do? He says, oh, by the way, you're all going to abandon me. You're all going to abandon me. You're all going to be scattered. It's going to be a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. But look at verse 32. Look at what he says will happen. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, we're going to find out this in two different chapters, how this plays out. We'll say more about Judas as he has his own death plays out in the next couple of chapters, and we'll say more as the resurrection unfolds. But just, just notice again the powerful thing. Remember what I told you? Jesus eats and offers friendship with sinners. Jesus dines with weak, sinful people because that's the only kind of people there are. There's not like a category of really faithful people that Jesus really loves and unfaithful people that he's begrudgingly kind of accepting. Notice, he predicts, you will fail, you will be miserable, don't worry, I'll meet you. What a powerful picture. Jesus dines with sinners, Jesus dines with sinners, and Jesus dines with weak, sinful people because that's what we're like. Because after all, you might be thinking, I'm not worthy to eat at a table with this Jesus. And friend, that is why you must. In fact, it might be right to say that the most important qualifications of meeting Jesus at the table and celebrating the Lord's Supper is that you know that you have no business being there. As if to say, as a sinful, weak, and treacherous, traitorous, flaky person, you come to the table and someone might ask you, like, what are you doing here at this table? And our answer is, he invited me. And it, just like the Passover, we, we declare, we preside over the table and de- declare a mystery. We were enslaved to sin. Death was coming. It was at our door. And it took him and passed over us. And friend, in a moment, we will eat the very same meal. And if you find yourself thinking, I'm a sinner, I have no business eating that meal, that's, that's absolutely, that's indicative that you must eat this meal. I want you to see the meaning of his death. It was not without purpose. It was to accomplish something that you and I would receive as a gift. I want you to see the story of redemptive history played out in this particular chapter. Sinful, treacherous, rebellious people are invited to dine with Jesus. He dines with them. And not only that, he refuses to give up on them. 
hey, you're going to fail me. Don't worry, I'll meet you. I'll meet you in Galilee. Think of it this way. As we commemorate the death of Jesus, the goal isn't that we would do or be better. It's especially important that you don't look at the story of Judas, Peter, or the other disciples and think that you would have done it differently. That's not the case at all. And that isn't even the point of the story. The goal isn't today to ask you to do better or be better. It's especially not to make you think that you could or do or be better than Judas and the disciples, which I know many of your temptation is, right? I would be like, don't sell out for Jesus. Don't you sell out for Jesus, right? Don't, don't you betray and abandon Jesus. The goal isn't that you would do better than Judas or the disciples. The goal is to see what Jesus does when you fail. That he dines with sinners. The message isn't don't deny Jesus. The message is I'll meet you in Galilee when you do. Hear the good news of the invitation of, to this table. This table is open to sinners. This table is open to traitors, treacherous people, people who are faithless, flaky, undependable. The grace of this table is visible for you and me. Have you wrecked it this week? Have you settled this week by, by spending your life on cheap and worthless things? Have you wasted some time this week on things that were not meaningful? Have you been a disappointment to God the Father and to the people around you? Then friend, I have good news for you. At a table, there was a mysterious invitation for those who have wrecked it. Come to this table. Here is my body broken for you. There is blood demanded for sin. I know you might think that's kind of like primitive and, and silly. It's not. Um, and you know this is true if anyone ever wrongs you, right? If anyone ever like wrongs you or injustice is perpetrated against you, you don't, you don't say like, well, I don't think blood should be shed. Man, your first instinct is kill that person. They ought to pay. Friend, don't deny that. That is a reflection of God's very character in your heart. That desire for justice, that desire for payment, that desire for things that are wrong to be made right. That desire is a reflection of God's good character in you and me. Don't suppress it. Notice that the character of God being just and righteous, he cannot fellowship with sin. And payment must be made. But here's the good news. At the table, the payment isn't made by you. It's made by Jesus. And so he says to you, and he says to me, take, eat. This is my body. And then he takes a cup. He gives thanks and passes it around and says, drink all of it, or drink, all, drink this, every one of you. Every sinner, every failure, every person who will disappoint God, Jesus, and everyone else, come join me. I'll meet you in Galilee. Let's pray together as we prepare to meet at the table. Jesus, thank you so much that you are good and kind to us. You are merciful to us in ways that we can't quite quantify. We thank you that you demonstrate your love for us by pouring out your own blood, dying in the place of weak and betraying and denying sinners. Thank you, Lord. That's our only hope. That's our only hope. So Lord, for those uh, in this room, maybe this is the first time they've considered the possibility that 
they're being welcomed by God to meet with Him in spite of the fact that we don't deserve it. Would you begin even now overwhelm them with the joy that comes from seeing that? Open their eyes of faith. Might they turn from lesser things? Might they repent of their sin? Like Judas, might they, might they turn from the 30 pieces? Might they turn from the lesser thing? Might they see Jesus as the one who is bought and paid for with the, as the price of a wounded servant and slave? Might we all, even in this moment, begin to turn from lesser things and receive the greater thing? Your very presence at the table. For the rest of us, Lord, begin to draw our focus and attention upon the satisfying work of Jesus, the finished work of Jesus, that he has lived the perfect and sinless life. The unleavened bread was not just about hastily running from slavery. The unleavened bread is a picture of the sinless and spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. Help us to reflect on that. Help us to accept by faith the invitation to receive it as a gift. And then help us in the most powerful way to be satisfied, to take into our very stomachs, the, to take into our very selves the, the finished work of Jesus, his broken body and his shed blood. Work in this mystery this morning in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. Meet with us at this table where blood is demanded, but it's not ours. It's the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. Thank you for that blood. We rejoice in it. We thank you, God, for the bread as it points us to the broken body of Jesus. We pray that you would bless it now as we take it. Help us receive it by faith. We thank you for the grape juice that represents the powerful shedding of blood for the remission of sins. We pray that you would bless it as we take it by faith. These blessings we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.